Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation, Salah. Our God is a God of salvation, and to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Those are verses 19 to 23 of Psalm 68, which is the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, September the 13th, 2022. So it's occasionally good to remember <laughs> that God's a God of vengeance as well, and he's a God of justice. And so it says that he will not clear the guilty. So what does that mean? It means those who will not repent of their sins, who won't even begin the process by confessing that these are indeed sins. And so that's the guilty that it's speaking about here. The, the guilty, the one who walks in his guilty ways, is one who refuses to confess and repent and return to non-guilty ways. So that's exactly what's going on there. In the passage today from Job, we're going to be in Job 41, verses 1 to 11. It's the Lord's speech continuing from yesterday, where he talked about behemoth um, as one of his creation. And today we're going to move to a different portion of his creation that's called Leviathan. In, uh, we're in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 9 to 19, the final Passover, and we're going to be in um, Palm Sunday in that passage. And then ultimately, we're going to finish with the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16, verses 6 to 15, which is a continuation of the, of the missionary journey, the second missionary trip of Paul that's going to take him further afield. So in, the, in that passage from, um, from Job today, uh, he's going to talk about Leviathan. The Lord said to Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? It's a great sea creature, and we don't know quite what it is. People will say, oh, it's a whale. Other people will, will suggest sea monsters and all this other stuff. So we just don't know exactly what this refers to any more than we do with Behemoth. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? I mean, the thing's too big for that is the point for any of these things. Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? The implication in all of this is all those things are possible with God's relationship with Leviathan, but not with Job's. That's the whole point of this. Can, can you tame him? Can, can you make him a pet of yours? In other words, that, that he would serve you like a pet or like some other kind of a, a beast of burden sort of a thing. <clears throat> will you play with him as a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You won't do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? If you won't come and stand before Leviathan, if you tremble in fear before part of my creation, imagine how much more you tremble in fear before the Creator. Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Who, whatever, is under the whole heaven is mine. Notice, I can do what I want with everything under the heaven. Because, well, I own it. I created it. I brought it into being. I sustain it. It's only because of my mercy that it continues to exist at all. Because I can end it, and I can end it now. 
if I choose to. But but God's saying, you know, you, you, you're going to have to do one of two things. You're going to first have to start with worshiping me. You're going to have to start with the fear of the Lord, Job. You've lost a little bit of that because you tried to pull me down, make me a man that you could argue with me and put me in the dock and try me and plead your case that, that you're actually the righteous one. But first, you're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to deal with my size, my power, my grandeur. You need to worship me. You need to come in fear in ways that you haven't already. So you've gotten a little too big. You, you've let your, your mouth kind of overwhelm you. You've let your circumstances overwhelm you to the point where you believe that, that you are righteous and therefore certain kinds of things should never happen to you. Nice to be you to be protected from all those things. And God had protected him from all those things. He had stayed the hand of Satan. And even in all this, he stayed the hand of the Satan. He, he limited what he could do to Job. And he never cursed him to his face. But at the same time, Job exalted himself and pulled God down in ways that were unhealthy theologically for Job because he, he had lost at some level the fear of the Lord. He still had a sense of the grandeur of the Lord, but he had lost a fear of that grandeur because it, it had gotten to the point with him where it was like, well, what else could he do to me? You know, I, I'm going to go ahead and, and fight from this point. You backed me into a corner. Now I'm going to come out fighting. And that's exactly what Job had done here. I don't think Job had, had forgotten the greatness of God, but he had lost an appreciation for it and a worshipful sense of how to approach the throne of God. In the gospel today, Remember, Jesus is, is he has come close to um, Jerusalem for the Passover. We saw him yesterday in Bethany, just a couple of miles out, at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And now we're, we're moving a little closer. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So... The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I'm not quite sure how putting Lazarus to death solves your problem, (laughs) Um, but we surmise that that's the reason the story of the raising of Lazarus was not in the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. What we assume is, is that Lazarus was still alive when they were written. John's Gospel is the last one written, and so we assume that that Lazarus was still alive at the time that those Gospels were written, and they didn't want to draw unnecessary attention to it. The story would have been big enough on its own that everybody would know it. And so that's the reason we believe that John includes this story, is that by this point Lazarus probably has passed away. And so John is just now going to go ahead and, and put that into writing because he's writing for an audience that he wants to believe on account of the signs Jesus did, and he recognizes the importance of the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The buzz was out. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And what they're doing is this is the way you would welcome a king on a visit to where you were. So if it were the Roman emperor, this is the way that you would welcome that emperor. And so they're welcoming Jesus in the same way that they would welcome a king. So they have, they're, they're proclaiming him to be the king of Israel. 
and he's coming in the name of the Lord. And, he, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us now. And so Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so he's quoting from Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 7, and, and he's quoting that in line with the Synoptic Gospels. Now, there's the Synoptic Gospels describe in more detail this whole process of Jesus finding a young donkey, actually. What, what they tell us is he sent his disciples into town with very specific instructions about which donkey to take, and that if the owner objected, they were to say, the master has need of it. And so that's how they, quote, found the donkey. Jesus knew the donkey was there, sent the people, it prophetically sent them there to collect this thing, told them what the conversation would look like so they knew they had the right donkey. So his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and what had been done to him. So the disciples didn't know what to make of all this at first. They were probably right there with the crowd believing that Jesus was going to have a throne on earth immediately, that he was going to be made king, that the messianic age was going to begin at that time in the way that they expected it to be, which was Jesus on the throne, the Messiah sitting on an earthly throne, presiding over the world from Jerusalem. So that he said, John says they didn't understand these things at first, didn't understand the meaning of these things, which would mean that I don't think they were standing there puzzled. I think they were standing there believing very specific things were getting ready to happen, but what that indicates is they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't understand what would happen based on this. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness, as you would, right? I mean, you see a man raised from the dead, you're going to tell that story again and again and again. And so you can bet on it that they were telling this story all over Jerusalem, which would mean that, because it's a pilgrim festival, then then what it would mean is is that that story is going to be spread, I mean, far and wide across the entire Roman Empire. It's going to reach all the places that it needed to reach as preparation for the proclamation of the gospel. So it's a, it's great news that he raised Lazarus from the dead, but that pales in comparison to God raising him from the dead. And so, and bring and the ascension and all those things that follow. So it, it's important that, that Lazarus be raised from the dead, and it's important part of the proclamation regarding Jesus. And, and because of it, we are told that many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus because of the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. So the buzz is going to go out, and it's going to go out all over the place, and it's going to be preparation for later the rest of the story about what happened to Jesus. So the, the reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So it's, it's their, these people proclaiming what Jesus had done that prepared the crowd to go out then and meet Jesus. And, and it's Part of something that's really important, I think, in our own lives is is that the main thing that we give testimony to is what he has done for us, what we have seen him do. And we need to always be prepared to tell those stories and to proclaim the goodness of God in the in the things that he does in this world today. And again, this goes back to transcendence and eminence, because the 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 great testimony is that he is still active in the world and still doing incredible things. And we need to always 
be prepared to tell those stories, but we also need to be prepared to see those things and to accept God's work in the world today. So this crowd went out, and the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out after him. We've lost them. We're going to lose these people. Why? Because Jesus did things like raising people from the dead. Because he healed a man born blind. He healed a man who hadn't walked in years. He, he did all the things that he did. And we can't do any of those things, and they're going out after him. So we've got to do something to stop this. They just felt jealous and threatened in a way that John didn't. When, when he observed that people were going out to Jesus, his response was, good, good. I pointed to him as the one who's the Messiah. They should go out to him. I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. I know my place, and I know my role, and I know that it's time for him to increase and for me to decrease. But that's because he's Messiah, and I'm not. So in the uh, Acts passage today, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having forbidden, been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they had tried, apparently, to go there. They had thought, at least, about going there. But then the Lord said no in some way or another. He prevented them from going into Asia and speaking there. And when they'd come to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to do that either. So passing by Mysia, they went on down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, did you see the change in the pronouns here? So before, a couple of verses before, it says, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. But here, when Paul sees the vision of the man of Macedonia, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So now Luke, right here in Acts 16, becomes part of the action. He becomes part of the apostolic band of the missionary group that Paul is taking with him to go to these various places. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So they've, they've crossed over the peninsula, the, 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 over to the Iberian Peninsula, and, and they're in that region from Spain and Italy, and now they're, they're over in, into Greece. <clears throat> we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, to me and to a lot of other people, this suggests that, there, as I said yesterday, there were not enough Jewish men living in Philippi to form a synagogue. And, and as I said, it takes at least 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue based on the, uh, the bargaining Abraham did with God over Sodom and Gomorrah to say, if there's ten righteous men there, will you, will you not destroy that town, or those towns, actually? And so God said yes to that, but then no further. And so the fear is, if there's fewer than ten Jewish men, you don't establish a synagogue because God might destroy the place, and you don't want don't to impede that in any way. <clears throat> so my belief is that they stayed in this place many days, but on the Sabbath they go down to the riverside expecting to find a place of prayer there. Paul's pattern before this had been go to the synagogues. 
So if there's no synagogue, then they assumed that there would be a place of prayer down by the river where people who were Yahweh believers would have come to gather in prayer on the Sabbath, because they're still going to keep the Sabbath. So his assumption was, this is where we go to find these people, because there's no synagogue. And so it's a disruption of Paul's pattern, and that's the reason I believe that that must truly be the case in Philippi at this time, was that there weren't enough Jewish men to form a synagogue there. So they go down, and where they supposed there'd be a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, again, the presumption is that there's women there, but, but there are not enough men. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was also a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. So she received the gospel in this place. She was a, a, a Jewish believer. Uh, well, she was a worshiper of God. It's not clear that she was Jewish. Um, but the other thing is, is that she would have been a quite wealthy woman because anybody who dealt in purple was a wealthy person because purple was a very, very difficult dye to make. It was incredibly time intensive. You got tiny little bits of this dye from these mollusks that were there. And and so it required thousands and thousands of these things. And you had to get into it and then you had to find the right gland and then you had to excrete the stuff from the gland. And it was a tiny little amount. So you needed thousands of these things to make any volume of purple at all and it was a a time-intensive process to extract that dye from that gland from that little mollusk so it 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 required a lot of money to have anything in purple that's the reason it became associated primarily with wealthy people and with royalty because it was such an expensive process so the presumption would be that anybody who deals in purple is somebody who's probably pretty wealthy and so the assumption here is, is that Lydia was an important convert because of, because of her standing in the community and her ability to finance things within the community. And, it, and it's so typical that, that that is a way that churches get planted, is, is that these faithful women will be there. In, in particular, for instance, in Pauly's Island, the church we came from, it had been a sleepy little community and all that, and they had to get rid of their, their priest because of, well— sexual sin and so they had to bring somebody else in well a a group of women prayed and prayed and prayed and they prayed for a very specific kind of a person they prayed for somebody who was spirit-filled that means they were charismatic and they believed in the current operation of the gifts of the spirit in the church and so they were praying for that specific person and god called a man chuck murphy and chuck came down took over that church and astronomical growth happened through his leadership in that place and, and and it was it growth in every single way, and people would stream there and come there on Wednesdays and for healing conferences and because they heard that God was moving and doing things in that place and and it was a wonderful wonderful thing to be a part of when when that was going on. It, it, I was so blessed to have been in that place and so but but these faithful women are the ones who who were the, were there persevering in prayer and saw God respond to their prayers in a powerful way. After she was baptized, Lydia, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so that was Jesus' pattern, right? If you find somebody there who, who is a person of peace, then go and stay at their house and remain there as long as you're there. 
And so that's exactly what Lydia is saying. She's extending hospitality, which I've said many times is one of the most important virtues in all of Judaism. And it's an important virtue, not just in Judaism, but in the ancient Near East as well. So Lydia says, y'all come stay with me. I mean, as you would, because you, you have just found the truth about all things and your prayer for salvation has been answered. And so you, you want to provide for the one who has been the bearer of this good news. We always have to keep in mind, we have to keep in mind all the time, the imminence and the transcendence of God. Those things have to be constantly handled with care to make sure that we don't confuse one with the other. We don't make him too distant and we don't make him too near, that he, he retains both those characteristics and qualities. And, and we can do that by, by bowing the knee and accepting his greatness, while at the same time appreciating the nearness of the Holy Spirit, drawing us to faith, drawing us to belief, and drawing us into relationship with him. We need to always make room for the Holy Spirit to show us the truth behind things. We can look at situations, and we can size them up, and we can come to the completely wrong conclusions. They could have said, well, I don't know what in the world we're doing down here in Macedonia. Why you got a vision of a man from Macedonia, and so we've been here several days, and now we come out on the Sabbath because we didn't find a synagogue, and what do we find? We, we don't find a man of Macedonia. We find women of Macedonia. So maybe we were wrong. And it would be easy to come to that conclusion. But the Lord called, and Paul believed. And because he believed it was God, he didn't question that he wasn't finding what he saw in the vision. No, he persevered in the ministry and the mission of the proclamation of the gospel, no matter whether the situation fit the vision or not, believing that ultimately he would find exactly what was calling him to that place. And so most of the time, what we have to do is just step in faith. If we believe that God's spoken, then just act in the way that he's calling you to act in order that you might see the glory of God by stepping out in faith and going somewhere and doing something you hadn't planned to do and you don't really understand, but then God will take you there and show you the truth of those things, just as he did in all these lessons. He's teaching Job about the truth, about his transcendence. He's teaching in the, in the Acts passage, Paul had to obey by not going some places and then obey by going somewhere else and not finding what he expected there, but continuing to believe that it was God who had spoken. And then what we see with the disciples in this gospel lesson today is a group of people who don't understand what's going on at the present time. They're living in the moment, but they're allowing God to reinterpret that as time goes along.